Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world for the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we're going to be talking about the big race of the 21st century, the race to develop artificial intelligence. I have three um, amazing speakers to help us make sense of this. We are first of all joined by uh, André Lezecric Petri, who is the founder um, of a technology investment company called AI Capital, and also the speaker, a uh, former advisor to the French Defence Minister, and the speaker of a new uh, attempt to create a European DARPA, the Joint European Disruptive Initiative. And down the line, also have two uh, colleagues at ECFR. Um, Ulrike Franke has been on the podcast several times. She works particularly on uh, security and, and defence. Um, uh, issues has just finished a PhD on drones, it's done a lot on AI in that context. And Angela Stanzer from our Asia program is joining from Berlin and has been looking uh, at how China is uh, shaping up as a leader in this new disruptive era of technology. The background to our discussion is that many people have, have said that uh, artificial intelligence is going to be the, the big race of the 21st century. Putin said that whoever's going to be the leader on AI will rule the world. Um, and uh, it's a key bit of the platform for Xi Jinping's attempt to escape the middle income trap and to reinvent not just the nature of the Chinese economy, but also the nature of Chinese politics. Um, and uh, many Europeans have been bemoaning the fact that, that Europe is being uh, left behind on that front. So the French President Emmanuel Macron, in his famous uh, speech at the Sorbonne, called for the creation of a, a European DARPA. And Angela Merkel has just given a big interview to the Frankfurter Allgemeine Sonntag Zeitung, one of Germany's biggest newspapers, um, where she tried to respond to Macron. And in that, she says that Europe has to get faster on disruptive innovation. So, André, why don't we start with you? you? You've said in the past that Europe's in the process of becoming a digital colony of either China or the US. Can you tell us a bit more about why you think that's happening and, and what we can do about it? Yes, hello, Mark, and hello, everybody. Uh, look, uh, a couple of figures. Um, uh, we just had the release of a famous uh, US analyst on internet uh, about the top 20 internet firms in the world. Well, the answer is simple. None are European. And clearly the momentum is behind China with uh, almost no company in the top 25 years ago and now making nine out of 20. Uh, that's one. Uh, the second um, data point we could use is just the investments in AI last year, 2017, uh, um, from a venture capital point of view. 48% went to Chinese startups, 38% to US startups, and 14% to the rest of the world. And yes, my friends, we are part of the rest of the world. So Europe is completely sidelined on that. Uh, and you just mentioned um, uh, the, the speech of, of Emmanuel Macron and uh, the answer of, of the Chancellor Merkel uh, uh, this Sunday. I mean, we've been um, fortunate to inspire the proposal of, of setting up this uh, this European DARPA, this fact is, is this speech was in September. We are already in June. 
uh, nine months almost have passed. And I think what the Europeans don't get is that speed is as important as money. Speed sets the norm. And we are not setting anything anymore. So, Ulrike, you've been looking at uh, the defence side of this, because I suppose part of the, the, the challenge in this is that there are various different uh, dimensions to this. I mean, how, how do you see the, the perspective from uh, European technology? Um, yeah, my view is quite similar to what Andre just said, namely that uh, Europe is largely falling behind. And I'm not so much only thinking about investment, but also about well, the thinking about all of these things. So on AI in general, the EU has a strategy um, and it turns out that what the EU seems to be aspiring is that they want to become a leader in ethical AI or rather a leader in the thinking about the ethics of AI. And of course, I very much applaud this, but the problem is, of course, you can't become the world leader in the ethics of AI if you're not a world leader in AI. And as Andrew just um, uh this, or Andrew just explained, that's not what, what seems to be happening. Um, on defense in particular, the thing is the Europeans um, have trouble working together on, on the defense realm, uh, which isn't news to any of our listeners. And this is also true when it comes to AI in defense and autonomy in defense. So I've been working quite a lot with the, the Germans on, on that, and they've been thinking about all of these things. But what has become very clear is that for instance, the Germans are not really ready yet to talk to the other Europeans about this because they feel they haven't had a they haven't developed their position yet, so they don't want to talk to the other Europeans yet. And that, of course, is, is super dangerous because you know if if European countries spend all their time trying to come up with their positions first and only then go onto the European scene, well, time is time is running out. So it, I, I'd say when it comes to military defense, the picture is is similar than what uh, Andrew described. Um, of course, that being said, there's also a bigger discussion about what kind of use of AI you want in defense and security. It's much less clear that, that we should be working uh, hard towards, towards having more, defense, uh, more AI in defense and security. But that's, I guess, a discussion for another day. So we'll go into more detail on those things um, as we look at what Europeans uh, can and should do and why it could be uh, different in the future from in the past. But before we do that, um, you know, the big challenge, apart from the United States, is uh, coming from, from China. Um, are there any lessons that Europeans can learn from China, Angela? Hi. Um, well, I mean, the biggest lesson that the Europeans can learn is what the two speakers previously have said, which is to be faster in everything we do. Um, I agree with the views that um, the EU is behind in its thinking. I think one of the problems is also that many Europeans, in particular in Germany, are still thinking about how to limit a lot of these issues, such as data flows, while us, at the end of the day, nowadays, it's more about how to manage them rather to limit them. So I think there's an issue in um, the way we think, even though I would also not maybe completely endorse the Chinese way of thinking, um, because this is one of the problems um, in particular Germans, but also other Europeans have vis-a-vis um, -vis China, of course, um, because no, there doesn't seem to be any ethics involved. There doesn't seem to be any kind of thinking on governance issues involved. And I think um, the lessons learned for the Europeans at the end of the day is to find the middle way. 
Angler, can you talk a bit about, for people who haven't been following it as closely, how central the development of AI is to uh, Xi Jinping's strategies for uh, for making China great again, I suppose, is uh, the shortest way of... Uh... I mean, it is one of his um, priorities that he set um, already in 2015 and is reflected in the so-called Made in China 2025 policy initiative. Um, in this initiative, China 2025 is primarily meant to benefit, in particular, from Germany's um, own strategic initiative, Industry 4.0. And this is why Germans worry so much that China has now this distinctive focus on Germany's most modern technologies that will make China a major competitor in industries, um, in the only industries actually, where Germany still has an edge. And how is this thing actually being implemented? I mean, can you talk about... Yeah, so I mean, what we have seen so far is mainly that China has increased its foreign investment to Europe, um, and in particular to Germany, in very recent years, and also the um, target industries of its investment has have changed from the traditional industries, um, such as real estate, to um, high-tech industries. And in Europe overall, we have seen huge um, takeovers by China in recent years that, for instance, included um, in Finland, the online um, gaming supplier Supercell, or in Germany, the acquisition of the industrial robot um, manufacturer KUKA. And it was in particular the takeover of um, KUKA producing, um, you know, future industries, robot um, industries that triggered uh, a very heated debate in Germany on how to deal with that kind of um, Chinese foreign investment, not only um, because it targets specific industries, but also just because of the amount of it. it just, it's, um, in 2016, China invested in Germany as much as in the past 11 years altogether. And last year, in 2017, it has set a new record high. So it's, it's these two issues that Germany is dealing with at the moment, and Europe also as a whole. So, Henri, maybe we can go back to you, if that's the, the kind of context. What do you think Europeans can do about it? Well, I, I, I think we can, what we can learn from China is probably this capacity of experimentation. There's always this wrong view about China being a monolithic uh, entity with one central government calling all the shots. And actually, uh, it has this capacity of launching uh, pilots, stopping them if they don't work, scaling them up very quickly if they work. And this Agility is something that we have completely lost in Europe. And why is it important? Completely concur with what has just been said, is that um, uh, technology becomes extremely political everywhere. We, I mean, we talk a lot about AI. We could talk about cyber and the influence on elections, fake news and the role of, of social media. So if Europe does not get its acts together, the risk that we are taking, that we're getting into, is that our, our own system, is is begun to be uh, irrelevant. I mean, it was amazing to see that Mark Zuckerberg uh, renounced to, uh, just refused flatly to go in front of the House of Commons. I mean, that shows you where the strengths of power. So what can we do is, number one, stop fragmenting. I mean, a lot of people applauded the, the European AI strategy. What I say is that's a nightmare. We have a French strategy. The Italians are starting theirs. There's now a working group in Germany. 
now that the, the EU Commission wants to come with its own strategy in December, all this will result in, again, fragmentation. That's point number one. And point number two is experimenting new ways and probably experimenting ways which are not entirely driven by the state. Um, I mean, what we have propo proposed with JEDI is to say we need to have an agency that will invest in everything which is too long term or too risky for the private sector because the private sector is not doing moonshots. Um, but it should not be driven by top-down uh, bureaucracies. Uh, and we have a couple of them in Paris and Berlin and Brussels and everywhere. But it should be uh, managed by the ecosystem. I think the President Macron understood that very well. But uh, now we are stuck with a lot of ministries that don't want to lose their power. The problem is that they are currently losing all power they have in front of the big uh, uh, technology companies that we are even receiving like state, uh, like head of states, uh, like a couple of days ago in Paris. And I think this this naivety in front of this this power shift is is uh, is, uh, is is just uh, staggering me. But can, can, I, can I? Sorry. Or we can after you. Uh, yes, thank you very much. I think that was that was a really important point. Um, but I wanted to say I think for Europe it's more important to try to carve out its own niche rather than trying to follow others ex uh, the example of others. And that, of course, is because we have special situations in Europe and the and the EU. And I'm in particular thinking about the EU should try to focus on developing. AI, and if you like, ethical AI, in a world with high privacy rules. And this is really something where we can't follow anyone, uh, the example of anyone else, because, you know, for instance, China, which we talked about, um, doesn't, doesn't have the same privacy rules. But in, in Europe, and I very much applaud this, privacy is, is something that is very important, but of course that impacts big data uh, collection and big data collection directly impacts AI. So maybe rather than looking elsewhere and trying to follow others, we should really try to see what are our strengths in Europe, what do we really want to preserve and how do we how do we build on that? And I think JEDI is a, is a great, um, uh, great effort to do that. But can I probe a bit further on that because you know a lot of people would say that the Chinese have been able to get themselves into a position where they're not being colonized by American companies because they have a closed market it's impossible for American companies to function in the Chinese market so it's a big market but it's one where you don't get bought up the second that you start coming up with new ideas by the giants in Silicon Valley um, and the fact that there is a Chinese internet means that you can actually have the scale and then both to, to have viable companies and then to start innovating later on. And at the beginning, there's a lot of copying. Um, and but more recently, China has put itself into a position where it is actually pushing the boundaries of, of AI. Is what you're saying about privacy code for the idea of creating a European internet that others can't get into? so that you can get European companies? Um, I don't think so. So I'm not a big fan of this whole idea of breaking up the internet. And, you know, when you said, yeah, the Chinese can do this because they have their own internet, I, I, I kind of thought, well, okay, fine. That is kind of their advantage, if you like, but that's not something we should follow, right? So again, I don't think that but, there's... Uh, if you, but if you're worried about um, other people uh, using our data in ways that we're not comfortable with, having backdoors, etc., 
presumably um, the only way you can have any sovereignty over our data is if you keep it in Europe. And that was the kind of core insight of the Chinese with their servers. Yes, true. But you can also do many things with, with legal measures, right? I mean, this is exactly what the EU has been has been doing with re recent regulations. So, I mean, I would... I, I, I would very much prefer for Europe to have strong uh, legal regulations that others need to follow rather than trying to cut us off uh, from, from other internets, which I don't think will, will end well. What do you think about, yeah, Andre, sorry. Yeah, if I may add on that point. I mean, I completely concur with the, with the, with the privacy aspect and finding your niche. I mean, uh, again, speaking about Jedi, when I hear, I mean, we talk about about AI. You you asked about Xi Jinping. I think Xi Jinping sees that as a way of leapfrogging. I mean, the current battle, uh, uh, take for example automotive, has not been very successful. So he's trying into electric cars, and I think this is also what Europe should do: is not try to build a Google or build a Facebook or build uh, an Apple, but think about the next big thing. Uh, when I hear the recent declarations in the space aspect, which is also a very important frontier technology uh, environment, where I heard that uh, some key people of the European um, uh, space ecosystem now uh, said we, we also need to have our own reusable rocket like SpaceX, I want to tell them, guys, this is a lost battle. This is the battle of the past. Let's try to invent the next big thing. So now they're coming up with plans of Ariane being reusable in 2028. That's going to be tons of billions who are going to be invested for probably not a lot of results. So what we need to think is how do we leapfrog? And I agree with, with what has been said. Privacy uh, is an important uh, value for everybody in the U.S. as well in, as in China, where a social so scoring system is being put in place. Uh, but the, re the, the response, I think, should not be only regulatory. You know, some people say that regulation is the, is the tool of the, of the, of the poor. Uh, and we could also see in, in, uh, in GDPR, uh, the recent regulation that has just been implemented in Europe, that it has very good aspects because it's an extraterritorial almost regulation. But there are side effects that makes, for example, that uh, people who are working, uh, advertisers in Europe working with Google currently have huge issues because their revenues are actually decreasing in Europe. So what we need is to invent the next big thing and be speedier in the implementation. I mean, GDPR took three years to implement. I give you one very concrete example. Why do we not ask uh, every operator, not close the Internet, but why don't we don't ask every operator in the European digital market to localize its data there. It would not be, I have found nobody, neither in the ecosystem nor with the regulator who was able to give me a, a good answer to that. This would be a very strong response, but probably this is this political will, political courage that we're lacking today. Angela, what do you think about is the right kind of balance? Because what you were saying before is that the, the worry is that Europeans might work out what the next wave is, but as soon as they get the technology, they'll get bought up by the Chinese and then um, uh, it will become a Chinese rather than a, a European technology when it gets used at scale. Yeah, I mean, for that, I think um, Europeans and Germans are already working on trying to protect their key industries better, not only from China, but in general. So there's a lot of talk about 
um, foreign investment screening, adjusting national laws, which has already happened in Germany, and there might be an EU-wide screening mechanism. So that is kind of the one side of the story. The other side, of course, is what is happening in China. And here, I think um, what seems to be a model cannot be our model because we are talking about a totalitarian state which is just imposing what it wants um, on the industries and um, and the people. So the social credit system has been mentioned. Um, there For more people who don't know about the social credit system, can you give a quick... Um, uh... So the social credit system is kind of... Um, um, an online digital system that tracks um, the people's behavior in any kind of areas. So if you um, smoke in areas you're not allowed to, you get minus points. Um, if you help an old woman across the street, you get plus points, and this will eventually help you to get maybe a better job, a promotion, or credit uh, loans at the bank, while us uh, minus points um, will could even prevent you from actually traveling and entering an airplane and train. So it's a complete um, controlling mechanism where the whole idea is to collect any kind of data digitally. And there are already pilot cities in China where um, these kind of um, points are collected via a mobile app, for example. So it's all digitalized. Um, and this, of course, um, is kind of... Uh, a big new future for China, but I would um, assume that this is not the future we want for ourselves. Um, so I think um, in all the admiration that we sometimes have for China's fast paced, uh, pace when it comes to di digitalization and um, artificial, artificial in intelligence or just being the largest e-commerce market and so on, we should always remember that there is a high price that comes with it. Um, this is why I completely agree with what Ulrike said about we have to find our own niche because we are also not like the US and we are certainly not like China. Um, the privacy issue is a big issue. Um, and the markets in China are not that much better, I think, than our markets because it might be true that a little startup company that has a great new idea is not being immediately swallowed by um, the big companies such as Google, but they are Chinese companies who swallow them. Um, there's, there, there's Alibaba and, and so on and so forth. So China has its own problems um, with these new markets. Um, so I think for Europeans, as I said at the beginning, it is to find their own kind of middle way um, where we can still talk about our ethics and values that need to come with it, but at the same time also um, fasten our own pace in, um, in, in phrasing in what we want um, from, from the digital future. So, so to summarize what we got to so far, we're basically talking about three tools to try and make Europe viable um, in this big race in artificial intelligence. The first is about uh, basically protecting um, European companies in strategic sectors through investment screening. The second is about um, having a regulatory framework which means that technologies develop in a way that's in line with European preferences, which might at least uh, civilize foreign companies, but might also shut them out of the market, creating more space for Europeans to, to thrive. And then the third bit is actually investing in innovation in a less fragmented way. Um, given that there's lots of kind of loose talk about disruptive innovation and innovation, can we maybe get a bit more granular on that third element and think about both you know how much money needs to to be invested where does it need to come from and how can one actually 
um, s stop some of the negative tendencies which you talked about at the beginning. Andre, do you maybe want to go first on that one? Yeah, this might be a, a little bit controversial, but I had recently a discussion with a, a member of the European Parliament who said to me, very excited, uh, yes, we're investing 80 billion in the framework program, the seven-year program on innovation. We need to double that at, at least. And, and actually, our answer at JEDI is not to say we need necessarily more money. Obviously, money is important. I mentioned that before with the amounts, but it's the way the money is invested. Today, what do we do? Why is disruptive innovation so key today and why is it different than five years ago? Because with the network effects, with the fact that today you can scale very quickly, that technology is accelerating, the, 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 the pace of technology is accelerating, and there is more and more winner-takes-all effect. That means that if you're not number one, you risk not having at all a piece of the market. I just give this example, 90% of advertising online in the U.S., is going to Google and Facebook. That means that thousands and other providers just have a very small part of, of, the, of, the, of the share. So being the leader was a luxury. Today, it's an absolute must. That's why we need to be disruptive. And today, what do we do? We take a long time to calls that take six months, 12 months, 18 months. Then we put relatively small amounts of money. So we disperse in huge consortiums where every single party has a little bit of money and third once we have invested we are not where we're asking where the money goes from a, a, a i would say bureaucratic point of view but we're not really asking how much it delivered nobody is really asking the question how much does the 80 billion really give us technological edge in europe i mean did we get anything in technological edge in the last 10 years i don't want to be too pessimistic but we lost everything in space we lost in in quantum computing, we are losing on genetics. Um, uh, I don't want to give you an, an, an example of the mobile, op, uh, the mobile and the telecom and the semiconductor sector. So the key today is to decide quickly because nobody knows what is going to happen tomorrow. So you need to take these bets. Secondly, you need to put more money on a concentrated way. Otherwise, you have startups who go from one round of financing to begging to the, to the next one. And third, you need them to be very demanding on, on the people who got financed for disruptive innovation and be able to pull the plug or to reorient 180 degrees because that's the way innovation goes today. And this is today something that you don't find neither in France, neither in Germany, neither anywhere in Europe that has this kind of a fast prototyping, fast failing mentality. And that's the model of DARPA that can be perfectly applied to the civilian world. Yeah. So, um, Ulrika, do you want to uh, the last word from your perspective on what Europe needs to do? Uh, yes. Uh, so I really, I very much like the three proposals, the way you, you outlined them, protecting the companies, regulatory frameworks, and then investing in innovation. And the thing is, you almost glossed over the most important aspect of this. And this is when you said um, all of this needs to be based on our preferences, the European preferences and, and values when it comes to that. And I would say, actually, the, the fourth recommendation for me would to actually say what these preferences are. I mean, we almost take them as a given, you know, privacy, yes, of course, it's important. But honestly, I feel that in Europe, we need more thinking about where where do we want this 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 uh, this voyage to go? Where do we want this trip to go? And how 
would we like the future to be? So, I mean, maybe unsurprisingly, I'm, I'm kind of making a case for more social science research here, but I really do think that as as Europe, as, Euro, as the European Union, we need to lay out what our preferences are and very importantly, what we are willing to sacrifice for them. Because, because of course, you know, th th there are challenges and sacrifices associated with that. So, so maybe that as a kind of fourth recommendation, if I may. Okay, and Angela, last word to you from this discussion. Thank you very much. I'll keep it um, short. So I think in the end, we have most of the things we need um, to drive all of this forward, um, what both of you have suggested. We have the money, we have the standards. And um, I do really like the point about investing in innovation, because in my view, this might be the one area we we still have an edge towards China and whether China will be really innovative in that kind of very controlled um, and muted society, in my view, it remains to be seen. Okay, so we've got one thing left to do in this uh, discussion before we uh, jump into the race for, for, of, the, of the 21st century, which is the, the bookshelf segment. André, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Are there any books you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Well, I just uh, came back from China yesterday and I took under my arms the big... Uh, uh, John Halliday, Bio of Mao. I think it's always very good to reread what uh, what's uh, what's the one man uh, control of a country like China can give. So that's one. And the second book, I think this should be a call for action for a lot of uh, governments in Europe, is uh, Marianne's Mazzucato's book, The Entrepreneurial State. Uh, if we want to 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 keep our values alive, if we want to have a really European way, it cannot be only defensive. It needs to be offensive. It needs to be value-based. It needs to be positive. And uh, that's where the states need to be much more entrepreneurial and less uh, centralistic than they are today. Okay, great. Fantastic. What about you, Rika? So I'm very happy because regular listeners may know that I always recommend science fiction in these bookshelf segments. And usually this doesn't fit with the debate we're having, but this time it fits perfectly. So the book I would like to recommend is uh, Linda Nagata's The Red, which is a book about military science fiction in a way, but mostly, and I think this is why this is interesting for our listeners today, it's quite a new take on this artificial intelligence taking over narrative because usually it either goes two ways sorry it goes um uh, two ways normally either uh, it's you have this narrative of the benign ai that is taken over and the world is running really smoothly so the utopian version or you have this super dystopian terror terminator version where the ai takes over and basically you know, fights humankind. And and Nagata's The Red is, is an interesting middle way, and that's why I, why I would like to recommend it. And maybe just, if I may, a second book that is also very fitting for this discussion, because we were, we were talking about the Chinese social credit system, right, which I find incredibly dystopian, to be honest. And there's an interesting book, um, which some of our listeners may already know, it's called Superset True Love Story. And that's takes on, um, in, to some extent, the this, this social credit system, although it was written before that came into, into being. But I think it can show what kind of future we may have to prepare for if, if that's the way we're going. So I think these, these two books uh, may be interesting for the listeners. Okay, who's that by? Super sad, true love story? Um, if I remember correctly, um, I think it's two authors, but I think it's um, Gary uh, Schettingart. 
but we'll we'll put links up in the description of the podcast, right? <laughs> cool. Okay. And Angela, what's on your bookshelf? Coincidentally, one of the books on my bookshelf is Mindful Tech, um, which is not a new book, but I've just discovered it because it promises it will bring balance to my digital life. And I see this quite necessary now more than ever. It's written by David um, Levy. And um, yeah, I can recommend it. Great. Fantastic. And I will add two, seeing as this is a greedy podcast where everyone's recommending two things. First up, I would recommend this interview I mentioned in the intro by uh, Angela Merkel, which I think is being seen as quite an important intervention in, in the German uh, debate in the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. And then the other thing, which I've mentioned in previous podcasts, but it's my uh, the most thought-provoking thing I've read on these topics for a very long time is this book called Liquid Surveillance, which is a dialogue between the Polish sociologist Sigmund Bauman, who uh, died recently, and David Lyon, who's an expert on surveillance. And he goes into a lot of the, the big topics um, uh, to do with how one how uh, AI and uh, surveillance technology is changing our uh, our society and international relations and the whole idea of what it means to be human. So that brings this podcast to an end. If you've enjoyed listening to it, please do let other people know about it by tweeting about it, writing about it on your Facebook page or on ours, and above all, by racing to the platform that you're using to listen to this podcast on and giving us a rating or a review. We'll put links up to all of the things that we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, from André Lezekri-Petri, Ulrike Franke, Angela Stanzel, and myself, Mar Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of our podcast is Jonathan Hakenbrosch, and our editor is Katharina Butel-Azinado. <laughs>